Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, episode 40, Gemini 8. We've got a serious problem here. The last time I talked about the Gemini program, we covered the rendezvous mission between Geminis 6 and 7. The rendezvous mission between two Gemini spacecraft had been dictated by the loss of the Agena target vehicle before the Gemini 6 mission. Gemini 6's Agena had exploded on its way to orbit. NASA quickly scrambled with the new rendezvous mission between Gemini's 6 and 7, which was an amazing success. But without the Agena, there was no opportunity to attempt a docking mission. The lack of the Agena also meant that NASA was not able to perform a high-altitude flight. Nor was NASA able to practice double rendezvous. This was the practice of rendezvousing with the target vehicle a second time, a technique which would simulate the Apollo lunar lander's effort to return to the Apollo command module in lunar orbit following the lunar surface mission. So, as NASA prepared for the Gemini 8 mission, all attention turned to ensuring that the Agena would be ready this time. Following the loss of the Gemini 6 Agena, an investigation began into why the Agena had exploded. Between the Gemini 6 and the planned Gemini 8 mission, NASA had only about four months to find the problem and fix it. NASA and the contractor that built the Agena, Lockheed Martin, set up a non-stop 24-hour investigation. Engineers and technicians worked in three shifts of eight hours for seven days a week. The leading theory for the loss of the Agena was an engine backfire. As I said in episode 36, the Agena's engine had been designed to restart up to five times in space. In order to restart a rocket engine in space, an oxidizer is needed to ignite the fuel. The usual procedure was to release the oxidizer before the fuel. When shutting down the engine, the oxidizer was to continue flowing after the fuel was shut off. This would ensure that all the fuel had burned up. Otherwise, unburnt fuel in the combustion chamber could cause a backfire when the engine is restarted. Lockheed Martin's main concern was conserving oxidizer, since the Agena's engine had to restart five times, and oxidizer had to flow before and after each engine firing. Lockheed's approach to conserve oxidizer 
was to allow the fuel to enter the combustion chamber first. Lockheed theorized that the Gemini 6 Agena had exploded because too much fuel had been released into the combustion chamber when the oxidizer was released. This in turn caused a backfire. Lockheed modified the Agena's engine to fix the issue. But a problem came when Lockheed wanted to test the fix to ensure that the Agena would work properly. The problem was the test needed to simulate the high-altitude environment where the Agena's engine was to start. Only one facility, located in Tennessee, was able to perform the test, and that facility was fully booked. The director of the Office of Manned Spaceflight, George Miller, personally intervened to get the Agena's engine tested on short notice. That was how important the Agena was. The testing ran into some serious problems when another backfire occurred, damaging the test engine. This time, the backfire had been caused by water and alcohol contamination. Lockheed had to rush another Agena engine to the facility to get the testing done all over again. By March 1965, however, the tests showed that the modifications were successful. This qualified the Agena for flight just before the launch of Gemini 8. A rendezvous and docking within Agena was not the only objective for Gemini 8. NASA also planned to perform a complicated extravehicular activity using a backpack that would help the astronaut maneuver in space. There were also plans to learn new rendezvous techniques in a number of experiments. I'm not going to get into any of these details, however, because Gemini 8 will never get to these other objectives in light of the emergency that happens. But one important aspect to cover before we get to the Gemini 8 mission is the prime crew selected for the mission. The astronauts selected for Gemini 8 were Neil Armstrong and David Scott. Armstrong had been recruited in the second group of NASA astronauts announced back in October 1962. Scott was from NASA's third group of astronauts announced in October 1963. Neither Armstrong nor Scott had been to space before. Neil Armstrong was NASA's first civilian astronaut to go to space. Armstrong did have a military background. He was a naval aviator who saw action during the Korean War. He actually lost an aircraft during a mission and had to eject. After the war, he became a civilian test pilot for NACA, NASA's predecessor. When NACA became NASA in 1958, 
he transitioned into becoming a NASA test pilot. During this time, he was in the Naval Air Force Reserves. In 1960, however, he resigned his naval commission. When NASA first started to recruit astronauts for the Mercury program, Armstrong was ineligible to apply. The first group of astronauts, the men who became the Mercury 7, had been limited to military test pilots. Because Armstrong had resigned his commission, he did not qualify. When NASA recruited a second group of astronauts in 1962, NASA looked beyond military test pilots. Armstrong was then able to join the NASA Astronaut Corps. Armstrong had a strong academic background. He was an aeronautical engineer, a degree he earned from Purdue University. He was also incredibly smart. It was said that he absorbed information like a sponge. He was not, however, considered a natural pilot. Rather, he flew from learning as an aeronautical engineer. The other astronaut for Gemini 8, David Scott, was an officer in the Air Force. Scott was also an aeronautical engineer and a career test pilot. In 1962, he went to the Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base in California. From there, he applied to NASA to be an astronaut. He was accepted into NASA's third group of astronauts in 1963. On March 16, 1966, Gemini 8 launched from Cape Canaveral, carrying Armstrong and Scott. Shortly before they went into space, an Atlas rocket had launched the Agena target vehicle. This time, unlike during the Gemini 6 mission, the Agena's engines fired without exploding. The Agena put itself in a near-perfect circular orbit about 298 kilometers above Earth. Once Gemini 8 was in orbit as well, Armstrong maneuvered the spacecraft into a similar orbit to the Agena. Gemini 8's orbit was slightly lower than the Agena's, so that Gemini 8 could catch up. At the start of the maneuvers, Gemini 8 was a little under 2,000 kilometers behind the Agena. As they approached, Gemini 8's radar began to pick up the Agena, about 330 kilometers away. Six hours into the mission, Gemini 8 achieved rendezvous with the Agena. This was only the second rendezvous ever achieved in space. The next step was to achieve the first docking in space. Armstrong approached the Agena manually. When Gemini 8 was just a few feet away, Mission Control gave this simple order to proceed with docking. Okay, Gemini 8, uh, we have cams solid. 
TM solid in that audio clip, by the way, referred to the telemetry of the spacecraft. Less than a minute after this instruction, Armstrong reported that the docking was complete. On the ground, Mission Control was stunned. During the last rendezvous between Gemini 6 and Gemini 7, Wally Shira maneuvering Gemini 6 said it was easy to control his spacecraft relative to the target. He said based on this that docking should be relatively easy. But no one thought it would be that easy. The mission control room in Houston burst into pandemonium at this historic first docking. After docking, the crew of Gemini 8 and Mission Control proceeded to go through a checkout of both spacecraft. One of the first things that Scott did was to turn off the Agena's ability to receive commands from the ground. This was to prevent an accidental crossover in communication if the Agena received a command from the ground while also receiving commands from the docked Gemini 8. Mission Control, however, retained the ability to monitor the Agena's systems. Mission Control warned Gemini 8 that there appeared to be a problem with the Agena's attitude control system. The Agena had some pre-programmed commands to help maintain attitude. Mission Control, however, had difficulty confirming that the commands were working properly. There was not much time for Mission Control to further assess the problem, however. Mission Control was about to lose contact with Gemini 8 and the Agena. At this particular time, Gemini 8 and the Agena were nearing the Indian Ocean. Mission Control in Houston was communicating with the spacecraft through a tracking station in Tananarive, Madagascar. As Gemini 8 and Agena were moving east, they would soon be out of range of the tracking station. There was a gap in coverage until the next tracking station could pick them up. That was a ship, the USNS Coastal Century Quebec, stationed in the South China Sea. In anticipation of the loss of communication, the tracking station in Tananarive relayed the following message from the Mission Control Center in Houston. If you run into trouble and the, uh, the attitude control system of the Agena goes wild, just send in Command 400 to turn it off and take control of the spacecraft. Did you uh, copy that? Roger, we understand. Roger, okay, stand by. Mission Control was saying, essentially, that if the Agena's attitude control system presented a problem while out of communications range, Armstrong and Scott could send a command to the Agena to turn that system off. They could then take over attitude control from Gemini 8. A few minutes after that message, 
Tananarive lost contact with Gemini 8. While out of contact with the ground, Scott began to maneuver the Gemini 8 Agena vehicle combination. He moved the spacecraft 90 degrees. As he prepared for the next step, he noticed that the 8 ball on his control panel indicated the spacecraft was rolling. Scott and Armstrong were unable to confirm visually that they were in fact rolling. They were in the Earth's shadow at the time and could not see the Earth's horizon as a reference point. Because they were out of communications range, mission control couldn't tell them if their instruments were accurate or not either. They then tried to use Gemini 8's maneuvering thrusters, known as the Orbital Attitude and Maneuvering System, to stop the roll. As soon as they stopped firing the thrusters, the 8-ball indicated that the spacecraft was rolling again. The astronauts thought the problem was with the Agena. Mission Control had just warned them about a potential problem with the Agena's attitude control system. So Scott did as Mission Control suggested and turned off the Agena's attitude control system. For a while, they seemed to steady, but then the spacecraft started to roll again, faster and faster. They fired Gemini 8's thrusters once more to cancel the roll, but the situation was getting worse. The astronauts worried that the centrifugal force of the two spinning spacecraft would break the docking connection. If that happened, they could severely damage and lose both spacecraft. Around this time, Armstrong noticed that the Gemini 8's maneuvering thruster fuel was down to 30%. This suggested that it was Gemini 8's thrusters that were causing the roll, not the Agena. The astronauts decided to undock from the Agena at this point. Before doing so, Scott had the foresight to flip the switch to allow the Agena to receive commands from the ground again. Armstrong then steadied the spacecraft long enough for Scott to push the undock button. Armstrong then gave the thrusters one quick burst to pull Gemini 8 away. After that, Gemini 8 continued to roll, confirming the problem was definitely with their spacecraft. After Gemini 8 undocked from the Agena, the tracking ship Coastal Century Quebec picked up Gemini 8 and the Agena on their radar. Immediately, Coastal Century Quebec knew something was wrong. The signals from Gemini 8 indicated spacecraft free, meaning it was no longer docked with the Agena. The tracking ship was also having a hard time getting a good fix on Gemini 8's position. That's because Gemini 8 was spinning, 
and so was its antenna. The Coastal Century Quebec communicates these problems back to Mission Control in Houston. Houston tells Coastal Century Quebec to do a communications check to figure out what was happening. In this first audio clip I'll play of the unfolding crisis, you'll hear the Coastal Century Quebec referred to simply as CSQ. Mission Control will be referred to as Flight. David Scott will be the one talking from Gemini 8. Scott is a little hard to hear, but basically he says they have a serious problem and they are rolling end over end. CSQ did not understand what was happening and asked what the problem was. Scott says they are rolling and couldn't turn anything off. Mission Control also had a hard time hearing what Scott was saying. So they asked the Coastal Century Quebec to repeat what Scott told them. CSQ flight. Did he say he could not turn the Agena off? No, he says he is separated from the Agena and he's in a roll and he can't stop it. His rig, his rig pressure is down to zero. His arms are making me a pressure. From this audio clip, you could hear that Mission Control didn't understand what was happening either. They seemed to think that Gemini 8 was still docked with the Agena and asked if Scott had said he could not turn the Agena off. CSQ had to repeat that Gemini 8 had undocked from the Agena. A few seconds later, CSQ tries to contact Gemini 8 again. The audio is a little difficult to hear again, but near the beginning, CSQ tells Mission Control that Gemini 8 has blown both RCS switches. The RCS is the re-entry control system. 
The re-entry control system consists of thrusters reserved only for re-entry. As Armstrong and Scott would later explain, on board Gemini 8, they were flipping and re-flipping every switch. They were trying to find any control that had been left in the wrong position. But the spacecraft kept spinning. They were now reaching about one revolution every second. This was so fast that they were having difficulties reading the instrument panel. At this juncture, the astronauts decided to flip the switch to activate the re-entry control system. By turning the RCS on, they were trying to lock out Gemini 8's orbital maneuvering thrusters, which seemed to be the source of the problem. As a safety measure, only one set of thrusters is supposed to be active. They were hoping that by activating the RCS, the orbital maneuvering thrusters would be turned off. But what Scott said in the audio clip is that they had armed the RCS, but they weren't able to fire the RCS thrusters to cancel their role. While the astronauts were trying to control Gemini 8, there was nothing much ground control could do to help. So Mission Control asked about the status of the Agena. CSQ tells Mission Control that the ACS, meaning the Attitude Control System, is off. That's because Scott had followed Mission Control's suggestion before they lost contact to turn the attitude control system off if they ran into a problem. Meanwhile, aboard Gemini 8, the astronauts are finally able to get sufficient control to start telling CSQ about their exact situation more. As you'll hear, Scott tells them that they are able to use the re-entry control system to start stabilizing the spacecraft. Roger. On a flight, CSQ. 
Roger, I understand you have ACS off, right? That's affirmative. CSQ flight? No. Okay, you better get that ACS on and get it in FC1. Roger, roger. CSQ, this is flight. Find out how, how much RCS fuel he has used and uh, if he is just on one ring. At the end there, you can hear that CSQ can see that Gemini 8 is being brought back under control, and the immediate danger has passed. You also heard Mission Control asking a lot of questions about the status of the re-entry control system. That's because, as I said, the RCS is supposed to be reserved for re-entry. If too much fuel was used stabilizing Gemini 8, they risked losing the means to get home. That's why Mission Control asks for a summary of the fuel situation. The fact that the astronauts resorted to the RCS underlined just how serious the situation had gotten for them. Mission rules now dictated that because the RCS had been activated, Gemini 8 must come home. They could not risk a continued loss of fuel needed for re-entry. All the fuel in the maneuvering thrusters had been used up. Gemini 8's mission was over. Mission Control made plans for Gemini 8 to splash down in the Pacific Ocean on the following revolution. On Gemini 8, Armstrong and Scott ran through their checklist for re-entry. Armstrong was worried that he had forgotten something and they would end up landing in the middle of nowhere. Scott assured him that everything possible had been done. As Gemini 8 passed over the Congo, the countdown to retrofire began. Just 10 hours and 41 minutes after the mission began, Gemini 8 landed in the Pacific Ocean. The destroyer USS Leonard F. Mason had been assigned as the recovery ship. Stationed east of Okinawa at the time, the destroyer was given orders to move at flank speed to recover Gemini 8. When Gemini 8 splashed down, however, the Leonard F. Mason was still three hours away. Aircraft from Okinawa managed to reach Gemini 8 first, 
about 45 minutes after splashdown. The aircraft dropped pararescue men who secured Gemini 8 with a flotation collar until the destroyer arrived. As recovery efforts were underway, the news broke about Gemini 8's crisis. The bad news came while NASA's senior leadership was not in an ideal position to manage the situation. Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens was in Washington, D.C. at a dinner hosted by the National Space Club. Vice President Hubert Humphrey was also in attendance as the keynote speaker. The National Space Club, by the way, still exists today. It's headquartered in a tiny little row home about a block east of Union Station. During the dinner, Siemens was told that Gemini 8 was in trouble. Siemens informed the audience at the event about the situation. He was able to say at that time that Armstrong and Scott were not in any immediate danger. By the time Vice President Humphrey spoke, word had come that Armstrong and Scott had safely splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. Siemens swore never again to be in a public position during a critical phase of any manned spaceflight in case something went wrong. Siemens also worked on getting better communication with Mission Control in Houston. One other person who was supposed to be at the National Space Club dinner was the director of the Office of Manned Spaceflight, George Miller. Miller had been at Cape Canaveral for the launch of Gemini 8. After the launch, he got on a NASA plane to Washington, D.C. On his way there, the pilot heard the news that something was wrong with Gemini 8. Miller told the pilot to go back to Cape Canaveral. Miller wanted to be on the ground at the Mission Control Center at Cape Canaveral during Gemini 8's re-entry. NASA's leadership was not the only ones out of position during the emergency. So were key contractor personnel. The Lockheed engineers who had developed the Agena rocket went to celebrate after Gemini 8 docked with the Agena. They went to a hotel and began drinking. When they heard about Gemini 8's trouble, they assumed that the problem was with the Agena. That was a reasonable assumption in light of what happened to the Gemini 6 Agena. The engineers tried to sober up and went into a crash analysis mode to figure out what could have gone wrong. Key McDonald engineers who developed the Gemini spacecraft were also not in a position to help. After Gemini 8 launched, McDonald's experts on the Gemini spacecraft boarded a flight from Cape Canaveral to Houston. As they were about to land in Houston, the pilot told them that Gemini 8 was about to splash down. Obviously, something had gone wrong, but they didn't know what. 
Going forward, McDonald's specialists would stay at the manufacturing plant in St. Louis. There, they could immediately set up tests and answer questions should a problem arise during a mission. A number of McDonald personnel would also shift to working in Houston during the missions. These changes will come to have an impact to ensure that key personnel were in the right place ready to respond when an even more disastrous situation arises a few years later during Apollo 13. Gemini 8 had returned to Earth, but part of the mission still wasn't over. The Agena target vehicle was still in orbit. After undocking with Gemini 8, the Agena began tumbling through space. During the last audio clip, you might have heard Houston telling CSQ they had better get the Agena's ACS back on. That was a reference to the attitude control system. Houston wanted CSQ to bring Agena back under control. Even though the manned portion of the mission had ended, NASA decided to go ahead and put the Agena through its paces by controlling it remotely from the ground. With the loss of the Agena from the Gemini 6 mission, this was the first Agena that NASA had in orbit. They commanded the Agena to push into a higher, circular orbit about 407 kilometers above the Earth. A problem with the command system, however, meant that the orbit ended up being elliptical rather than circular. NASA believed that the problem was a miscalculation in the Agena's center of gravity, which threw off the maneuver. NASA then ordered the Agena back into a lower orbit, in the hopes that one of the next Gemini missions, maybe Gemini 9 or Gemini 10, could rendezvous with this Agena. Overall, despite some problems, the Agena actually performed very well. NASA confirmed that the Agena's main engine could be restarted multiple times successfully. Meanwhile, on the ground, McDonald engineers investigated what went wrong with Gemini 8. They concluded that a short circuit must have left one of the thrusters to be in the stuck open position, so it was continually firing. Even though Armstrong and Scott had flipped and reflipped every switch, the power to the thruster was not turned off. That's because Gemini 8 had been wired in such a way that the thruster still received power even if the circuit switch was in the off position. As a result, the thruster kept firing. McDonnell would rewire subsequent Gemini spacecraft so that going forward, when the astronauts flipped the circuit switch off, power to the thrusters would actually be off. Post-flight analysis generated frustration 
over the premature end to the Gemini 8 mission. Had Gemini 8 been in communications range of the tracking stations, ground control would have received data that could have been used to tell Armstrong and Scott that the problem was with Gemini 8's thrusters from the beginning. They could have advised the astronauts what to do before Armstrong and Scott ran out of options and turned on the re-entry control system that mandated an end to the mission. The early end to the mission cast a dark shadow on what had been a momentous first, the first docking in space. Armstrong, however, will come out of the Gemini 8 mission with a reputation for someone who could handle himself in an emergency. And this will make him a standout candidate when it comes time to choose who might be in the prime crew to land on the moon.